Amen. Well, good. Well, welcome. This is our fifth session on how to study the Bible in our core seminar series. And just by way of review, um, I just wanted to remind you of what we've talked about so far. So far we've talked about, we spent a couple weeks talking about inductive Bible study, the method itself, right? And since then we've been talking about different uh, interpretational challenges or tools or ways that we can go about understanding a particular passage we might be reading in order to be able to understand it better. Uh, So we considered, for one class, we considered the Old and New Testaments, how those are different and similar to one another and how that helps us to understand a passage. Uh, And then last week we talked about Bible genre, right? So the literary genre, usually a a very intentional decision by the author um, is important to help us understand how to interpret or understand what the text is going to mean. The genre is is given to figurative language, then we're going to want to be able to understand uh, the language figuratively. If it's given to logical argument, we want to be able to apply the rules of logical argument to the text. So those are the kinds of things we talked about last week. This morning we're going to talk about uh, kind of a host or about a list of other tools. Most of them are tools that we're going to find right in the text, similar to genre. Uh, And uh, so this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to take a look at author's intent. That's one tool. Um, We're going to take another look, and this is a a recurring theme. We're going to take another look at context. Uh, We're going to discuss literary structure. So what is the technical structure of the passage and how does that help us? We're going to briefly touch on parallels. We're going to talk about linking words. We reviewed those when we were talking about observation um, before. We're going to look at repetition as a tool. And then finally, we'll, we'll close out our time talking about commentaries and dictionaries and study Bibles and kind of those external kinds of tools. I do want to uh, make one quick apology. Your, your note sheet is going to be mostly right, but I did make some adjustments to the, what we're going to talk about, especially in terms of uh, uh, preserving time. So if things, aren't, if things don't match up exactly, I apologize uh, ahead of time. So let's go ahead and get started. And we're going to start talking by talking about uh, author intent and context. We're going to t- kind of talk about them together because they fit together pretty, pretty tightly. Can somebody give me a, an example of a Bible passage that they've heard used out of context? <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> Cal? Yeah, judge not lest you not be judged. That's Matthew 7. Sometimes it's just don't judge. Sometimes it's just don't judge, right? That's the, or at least that's the paraphrase that's given from people's understanding. Yeah, any others pop to mind? Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That would be used humorously, but out of context for sure. <laughs> yeah. Using passages out of context is actually really easy to do, right? We, we, ca- we grab something that seems familiar to us, or it attaches itself to an idea that we already have, and we think that that Bible passage or that verse speaks to that when it may, when it may not actually do so. And the tools that we use to keep ourselves in context are... Authors in t- First of all, author's intent. What did the author mean when he was trying to write what he's writing to us? And then 
in a broader sense, what is the context of what's going on? Um, you know, and we'll talk about both of those things. So every book of the Bible was written in a, to, into a specific context with a specific purpose in mind, and therefore we should in, interpret each part of a book in light of this context and purpose. We also know, because the Bible is an inspired book, that it is ultimately God's word and not the author's word. So you have the author's purpose, but you also have God's purpose. And God's overarching purpose in all of Scripture is the revelation of His glory, primarily as it is displayed through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we sit down to study God's word, as we seek to discern the purpose and context of a particular passage, we should do so with the goal of growing in our knowledge of God in all of His glory, And we need to see that the author's purpose in writing the book is always serving that larger goal. So let's look at some passages to see how how to uncover the author's and therefore God's intention or purpose. We'll start with one where where the author's intent or purpose is clear or explicit. If you want to turn your Bibles, you can to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I'll I'll read it for us, though. Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, why did John write the book of John? that we might believe in Jesus Christ. That's his whole purpose and goal, right? And so when we study the book of John, we need to keep this purpose in mind because everything John included and the way in which he included it serves this purpose. Right? So if we think about, if we're thinking that we're on some other track that's leading us to a, a different conclusion, we know that we're taking our passage out of context. This includes what stories he does or does not tell, It includes the order in which he tells stories. And it also includes how much time he devotes to certain events. He's trying to call our attention to things very specifically and very purposefully. And the same is true for for the other Gospels and for other Bible books as well. So that's that's all fine and good. But what about a situation where the author's intent maybe is not so obvious? You know, in John, he just comes right out and says, this is why I'm writing the book. Other ones we may not have as clear of a statement of of purpose. So in that case, we need to examine the text for clues as a starting place. We need to try to understand why it was written and what its main themes are. Main themes are going to be help us to understand what the what the original author was overall trying to say. We talked about this some in our last class on genre. When dealing with a New Testament epistle or an Old Testament prophet, try to answer these four questions to get a sense of the purpose. And these are on your handout. Who's writing to who? So who's the author and who's the recipient, in other words? What's the situation of the author and the reader? So out of what context does the author write? Paul in prison. You know, what context are the hearers in? The persecuted church, right? Are there problems or issues being addressed? Think of, the, think of first, first and Second Corinthians, where Paul is writing to deal with specific issues within that church. Or number four, are there any repeated themes or a single idea that kind of holds the whole book together? And for this one, reading the whole book at a a single sitting is really helpful, or as in as short a period of time as you can. That way you get your sense of the overall 
theme in the book. A helpful text to meditate on using these four questions is 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. We're not gonna, we don't have time to do it today in class, but take, take it home with you. I encourage you to do it there. For 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. And as you do, you'll find that this verse is going to be profitable by itself. But you'll get a lot more out of it, I promise, if you understand how they support Paul's main purpose for 2 Timothy. So read the verses, take a step back and say, what's going on in the overall book of Timothy, and how does this fit in? And you'll find that your, your understanding of that particular passage will be increased. Okay? Now, what happens if you go through the book and you don't see it? You don't really get or understand the author's purpose from the text. This is when a a commentary or your study Bible notes are going to be really helpful. Um, They'll often have specific answers to these questions. Take the ESV study Bible, for example. That's the very first thing that happens at the beginning of every book is a summary of the book, including an outline, what the purpose was, when it was written, who it was written to, what maybe some historical details about those people. It's going to be very helpful. So if you can't see it from the text, then we start asking questions of, of other tools like commentaries and study, in, and study questions. Any, any questions on context, using context, or, using, uh, or finding the author's intent, or understanding his purpose in writing? Okay, that's okay. Think about that more. If we'll ha- we should have time for questions at the end. I'm trying to reserve more questions than we did la- more time than we did last week. Um, and by the way, every couple of points, we'll stop for questions. So, author's intent, context. Now we're going to move on to the next three uh, tools. So, interpretive tools that we're going to look at next are structure. We're going to take a very brief look at parallelism because we covered it last week. Um, and then also linking words. Those are, those are the three that we're going to talk about right now. They're designed to help us break up larger sections of Scripture in order to help us but better understand their meaning. So we're going to try to break it. This, this is a, taking a passage and break it down in order to reconstruct it back up to understand what its main themes are. So structure is the first one we're going to look at. When we're talking about structure, we want to ask ourselves two questions. Has the author himself divided the material into sections? In other words, do we see clear breaks? I'm talking about this topic, and now I'm talking about this topic. I was talking about Jesus, and now I'm talking about application. So has the author kind of self-consciously done that? Um, And then, uh, how do those sections fit together? So where has the author broken himself down, and then how do those things get connected to, to one another? Because even when an author changes his topic, right, they're still connected in some way. There's still a reason that he moved from topic A to topic B. And understanding that is going to be very helpful in terms of interpreting your text. That first, the, the first question is key. Not all portions of Scripture have a recognizable overarching structure to them, so some of them are going to take more digging. But when, a book, when you do see that a book appears to be put together in a particular pattern or order, it's important that we understand what that structure is and that you make note of that. That way you can see more clearly what the author is trying to do and what his point is in the book. So how do we find the structure? Look down at your handout and you'll see a few tips I've I've outlined there for doing this. Number one, look for repeated words or repeated themes. The more an author says something, the more he wants you to think about it. So if he says it over and over again, or if it seems like in the beginning of the book he says A, and then kind of towards the end of the book he seems to revisit and come back to A, 
then those are those are good 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 clues that you want to you want to see that as part of the structure of the book and part of the overall message. Uh, number two, when you're talking about narratives, narratives can be harder because they're stories, right? When you're looking at narratives, look for scene changes. Pretend you're a movie director or a playwright and ask yourself, did the action just switch scenes here? If not, why did the author stay? Why did he stay where he was and continue to tell a story? If it did change, why did it change? What's the purpose in shifting our attention from one area to another? Um, and those, are, those breaks will help you see where the structure lays out. <clears throat> uh, number three, when we're talking about dialogue, so this again is in the narrative context, usually we're talking about dialogue, you can often divide the text up based on who is speaking. For example, in the book of Job, it matters if Job is speaking, God is speaking, or if it's one of Job's friends speaking. They have, you have three very different messages kind of going on during those, and you have that back and forth of question and answer and those kinds of things. So that helps you in terms of breaking down and understanding the structure of the text. And number four, in some places the structure that's used is a structure of legal argument. Right? Malachi is a good example of this. Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is a good example. So taking an example from the book of Romans, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul establishes that everyone is under God's wrath because of sin. Chapter 1 focuses on Gentiles. Chapter 2 focuses on Jews. Before he moves on in chapter 3 to uh, begin his argument about the free gift of salvation in Christ for, those, for all those who believe. Right? So chapter 1 and 2 sets up chapter 3 in that sense. So if you're looking for that kind of a, a, lo- a logical or legal argument, uh, it can be helpful to see, when you see that, make note of it. And when you do see that logical progression of thought, especially, and this is going to be especially true in studying the New Testament epistles, right? Um, you want to trace that argument throughout the book. So as he, as he develops it, as he adds facets to it, you want to make note of those so that way you can see how the argument builds across the entire book. And that will help you when you're in, interpreting your particular passage to know where in the argument you are. Incidentally, you'll find that paragraph markings, chapter divisions, and, diver, and verse divisions in your Bibles, while sometimes helpful, are not always. Keep in mind, those things are not in the original text, and so they're not inspired by God. They, are, they come afterwards. They were designed to help us, particularly in, in other cultures that use those kinds of markings. Um, and uh, so just if it seems like there's an odd break, don't sweat it. Just don't, and, and don't let that throw you. Um, those are, those are just there as an interpretive guide that the interpreters thought was helpful. Um, so how do we use this structure? Once we've seen it, Okay, okay, I see the structure. Now how do, I, how do I actually use this to make my understanding of the scriptures better? Once you've done the work and broken out your passage into subsections, whether based on scenes or arguments or themes or repeated ideas, it's useful to give each of your sections some kind of a summary title. This forces you to read each little piece and say, okay, what's the essential idea here? And write it down. Again, going back to our observation, right? observing and doing things with a pencil, writing things down is really helpful. Um, So this summary forces you to think about what the main point of each subsection is and write it down. One thing to be aware of, don't feel like you have to get it right the first time. Just write down what your impression is 
And you can go on, you go back and refine your impressions as you go on. As the, as the argument grows, you'll see, oh, that really wasn't what he was talking about, was it? And you can, you can change it. So don't, don't worry about getting it right the first time through. Let your, let your thoughts develop over time. After you've summarized what each section is about, the next step is to see how all the parts fit together. Um, as we said before in a letter, the sections might be arguments that build on one another, or in the case of a narrative, the sections might be painting a picture of God through contrast or complementing uh, scenes and stories. Now along the way, you'll find that you started basically to outline your passage. And that's what, you're, that's what you're looking to produce when you're talking about the structure. You're looking to produce the outline of the passage. So you want to continue that now that you've kind of got your main section headers down, you've taken each little subsection, you've given it a summary. Now you can go through what's in each of those pieces and just fill in some of the details of your outline. And that'll again flesh out your, your understanding of what the overall structure of the text is. Um, outlining a chapter or an even entire book can be a great way to follow the thought and see how the structure itself can reveal meaning. Again, that rep, the repetition of ideas or the adding on of additional pieces uh, will, will, should become clear as you begin to outline uh, your passage or, or the book that you're studying. Second tool, or next tool, I should say, and this is section four on your handout, is parallelism. Now, if you remember from last week, we looked about parallelism specifically in poetry. It does exist in other places. It's a little harder to see. Um, and in the interest of time, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. The principles are the same. You're looking for, I said A, and then I repeated the same thing again. That's one kind of parallelism. Another kind is, I say A, and then I say the opposite of A. Right? So that's a, that's a form of parallelism. It's to help you see that these two things are connected, and maybe how they're connected. And then the third kind of parallelism that we looked at was, I say half of A, in one statement, and then I say the other half of A in the second half of the statement. And so that's another form of parallelism. That one's a little harder to, de- to detect, especially in the, New Testament narr- in the New Testament epistles and stuff like that. But if you do clue into it, pay attention. So that's about all we really have time for on parallelism. If you have particular questions about that, we can talk about them in the question and answer time. Uh, next tool. Linking words. I know we're going through these quick, so think about questions you have, and we'll, and we'll stop after this one and, and talk about questions. What are linking words? Uh, identifying linking words and how they help us to understand the relationship between sections and phrases in the text. That's what they do. They help us to understand relationship. This is not a new concept, right? If you remember when you were young, your mom may have said to you, don't touch the stove because it will burn you. Right? Don't touch the stove and it will burn you are connected by the word or linked by the word because. That word links the two clauses together and tells us that being burned is the reason or grounds for why you should not touch the stove. Same thing is true when we're talking about linking words in the Bible. They're going to take two concepts or more and link them together in such a way that they make more sense to us. Um, Linking words can be used in a number of ways and show that the author is trying to accomplish specific kinds of things. And I I have these in your handout. Uh, The author may be trying to give examples. For instance, blah, 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 right? The author may be trying to add information to what he's already said. Furthermore, and then he goes on and keeps speaking. 
The author may be summarizing what he said in the past. In short, this, that, or the other thing. Uh, Or the author may be showing a sequence or progression of ideas. First this, then this, lastly this other thing. He's showing you a progression through a a sequence of ideas. Or the author might be giving a reason for something. Because is a good clue to this one. For, if can even sometimes be uh, uh, used in this way. He's giving a reason for what he said before by articulating what he's going to come after. Another reason that he may use a linking word is to show the result or purpose of something. So that I did this, or I say you should do this, so that you may grow in Christ. Right? So that's that purpose or uh, reason or result of, of what, you, what he may have said at first. Sometimes the author is trying to cr- contrast ideas. So, however is a good clue. Either this or that is a clue. I'm contrasting those ideas. Not this, but that. I'm contrasting those ideas. So those are all, all uh, words that are used to contrast things. Um, listing or distinguishing between various things. This would be a, just your standard list. Usually is connected with the word and. Uh, Another, another purpose or another reason that an author would use a linking word is to indicate that a particular consequence of a, of a preceding statement, therefore, consequently, for this reason, right? Those are words that tell us that the author is trying to show what the, what the consequences are of a preceding argument. Uh, he may be making conditional statements. If this, then that. If you obey God, then you will be blessed. If you do not obey God, then you will be cursed. From, De- from books like Deuteronomy, right? And then lastly, or at least the last one that I'm going to cover with you now, uh, the author may be trying to tell the purpose behind something or introduce the result of something. Again, so that. Uh, I told you all these things so that you may follow Christ more faithfully. If you remember on the... On the uh, on the Bible study helps card that I passed out a few weeks ago, on the back I listed a whole bunch of linking words. Tried to break them down a little bit according to their category, but could, that could that could go further. But that's a pretty pretty good list of linking words. So if you're looking for like I'm not sure what linking words would look like, there's a good list of them for you to use in terms of finding um, uh, the linking words in a passage you're seeing. And again, an, act, an activity for you to do at home to practice this skill. Uh, a good passage is Titus uh, 2, 1 through 15. Go through that passage and underline all the linking words. Um, and then match up with these words with this list of, of things that I said they mean, right? So if I see, you know, because, then I know that I'm seeing the reason for something, right? And take that understanding and see how that helps you to understand the passage better and, the, and what the author might be trying to communicate better. All right, well, let's stop there and ask for questions. Any questions on anything we've covered so far? Okay. Two more tools. Two left. One is repetition, so this is our last text-based tool. This is the last one we're going to find in the text of the, of the Bible itself. And then we'll move on to uh, talking about commentaries and Bible dictionaries and those kinds of things. 
Repetition, repetition of words or phrases and ideas within Scripture is a method that the author uses of drawing the attention of the reader so that uh, he can highlight important or even central points of the text. The repetition tool, like many of the other tools we discussed, is not some kind of a magical skeleton key that unlocks all of the passage's meaning. Excuse me. However, it does assist us in our study and can bring clarity and understanding. So let's briefly uh, consider some uses of reputation, uh, re- repetition. <clears throat> um, I passed out a couple of Bible texts uh, at the beginning of class for a few of you to read. Um, so here's one way a, an author can use repetition uh, in, in a text. So who has John 6, 47 through 59? Can you read that, Brian? Truly, truly, I say I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as we taught at Capernaum. Okay, great. So what are, what, are the, what are the repeated ideas that you heard? Just a couple words. Say again. Bread of life. Yep. Say again. Truly, truly. Yep. Came down from heaven. Say again. Drinking of blood and also eating, right? Eating of that bread. So you can see the author is repeating multiple ideas, and the idea is he's trying to highlight his main point. His main point is that those who participate or eat or feed in, in, on the living bread from heaven will have life, right? Bread, eating bread brings life. Drinking the blood brings life, right? So the, he's just going back over that territory multiple times, repeating it in order to highlight his main point. Another way that uh, uh, repetition gets used, this is from Daniel 3, 1 through 7. And you guys can read from wherever you are, by the way. You don't have to feel like you have to come up front. Uh, Daniel 3, 1 through 7. This is going to be one where the author is trying to uh, reveal his opinion or interpretation of the narrative. John 3, 1 through 7. Daniel. Uh, sorry, Daniel 3, 1 through 7. Sorry. And they and the herald proclaimed aloud, "You are commanded, O people, 
languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, <coughs> and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tri trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay. So you see, what, what are the things you heard re repeated? You can use categories if you want. You don't need to repeat all the words. <laughs> oh, lots of instruments. What else is, what else is repeated? Officials. Officials, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes up several times. Golden image, which is a idol, right? That's the, that's the, the, that's the point that's being, trying to be driven home, that they were trying, being instructed to worship an idol, right? And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, and the, so this bowing down idea and needing to worship was the other, was the other one. So you can see how the, Daniel is using that to highlight and drive home, especially to the alert Jewish reader, we are being asked to worship something that is not the true God. Right. Okay, good. Second uh, Timothy 2, 3 through 6. It's going to be a, a way of using um, emphasis, a repetition to emphasize the main idea again. Okay, what's the repetition in this one? Hard work. Hard work. Right? It's not. It's not. It's not quite as obvious. It's like because we have three different examples being used, but the idea is being repeated that the faithful worker receives the prize, right? And so again, it's going to be emphasizing that main idea of that section. Okay, good. Uh, last one. Revelation 18. 9 through 11 and 15 through 20. This is going to be a use of repetition uh, in order to set tone or feeling within the text, right? To communicate some emotion. So who did I give that one to? Uh, Carol, right. Okay. 
Okay, well, some of the uh, repeated ideas there. Judgment, mourning, crying, right? Yep. Yep. Say again. Single hour laid waste. Yep. So that idea of judgment. Great city. Yep. Yep. In this case, I mean, clearly there's probably other other ways we can see that how the repetition is going to help us, but it helps us. It evokes a certain emotional response from us. That's the author's intention is to get us worked up about this this judgment that's coming, right? And to be, I want, I don't want that. I want to avoid that, and I want to pursue what's good. And then other areas of the text can help us understand how to avoid that 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 uh, judgment that's going to come, and and the reasons of the judgment are going to come. Yeah, good. <clears throat> Questions on repetition? Just before we go into commentaries, I'll stop there. Okay. Last tool, section seven on your handout. Commentaries, dictionaries, and I've added study Bibles to this list, right? Commentaries, dictionaries, and study Bibles. Up until this point, we've covered tools that the author actually used in their writing. So by understanding those tools yourself and seeing them and observing them in the text, you can then use them to understand what the text is trying to say to you. Um, in, in this section, we're switching our focus to things that come from outside the text. Right? How is it that I use a tool that is not built in to be able to understand my Bible better? Um, the reality is that even if you employ all the methods and tools that we've discussed in the class, whether this, whether today's session or any of the previous sessions, uh, there will come a day when you, wa- when you want or need to go deeper in your Bible study. And this should be an encouragement to you. It means you're interacting with the text in a more meaningful way. You're maturing in your understanding of God's Word, and He's blessing you with an appetite for more in your studies. Fortunately, we have, fortunately, we have, Bible, we have study Bibles, Bible commentaries, dictionaries, and other resources uh, for us to use uh, so that we might plumb the depths of the Scriptures even more deeply. We'll begin with commentaries. Frankly, when many people think of Bible study tools, they immediately go to commentary. We're covering it last for a reason. So people often imagine that all that's required in Bible study is to simply look up what's written in some type of commentary, and voila, you're finished. You now know what the passage means. Nothing could actually be further from the truth. In fact, if you're going to use a Bible commentary, it is best to use it towards the end of your study, not towards the beginning. Why is this? It's because if all you do is use a Bible commentary then all you know is the interpretation and conclusions of the commentary's author. And you will only be learning their opinions. And because you did not take the time to actually study the passage yourself, you'll have no frame of reference and no way to judge the correctness of the interpretations offered to you in the commentary. So our first, our first goal, our first desire, should be to understand the scriptures for ourselves and then to apply the learning that others have done in the past or uh, uh, you know, through, more, through greater study, greater time of study, uh, to our understanding as an after, as an after effect. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Oh, here we go. Uh, it, if, you're, if all you're able to do is repeat what somebody else has said, uh, you won't be able to do anything but tell what those opinions are, and we won't be able to tell if they're correct. Far too much of what passes for Bible teaching today is nothing more than a passing around of somebody else's views. 
We, on the other hand, want to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, right? They studied for themselves what the, word, what the Bible said and applied it to what Paul was teaching them and came to the conclusion that what Paul was teaching them was the truth. So we want, And we want to do that for ourselves. And we need to do that with any commentary we pick up. We need to say, does this agree with what I just understood from the scriptures? And does it expand upon that? Or does it lead me in a different and possibly wrong direction? <clears throat> but that might lead to this question. If our Bible study method, this inductive Bible study method with all the tools that we've taught in the cor- over the course of this course seminar, if that's so beneficial... Why bother with a commentary at all? I mean, if I'm just going to stand in judgment over all the commentaries I read because of my personal Bible study, what's the purpose in using them? Um, They are useful for a number of reasons. First of all, the better ones are written by acknowledged authorities on that particular book of the Bible. Um, Oftentimes, these men and women have spent years and years and years studying this particular book in detail, and so they definitely have something to teach us, more so than what our, our time in the text is going to be able to reveal. In addition, Bible commentaries often give contextual details about the historical period, the culture, maybe the language and manners and customs of the area. Uh, All of this is information that it would take you a lot of, of time and effort to compile, and the commentary has already done that compilation for you. So it's a very helpful tool in terms of doing your own research, especially when we're talking about that context. Where is this coming from? Who are the people that are involved that... The, the, the text itself doesn't give us much in the way of details about. In addition, Bible commentaries often give contextual details. Oh, I said that already. Huh. Uh, commentaries will frequently also discuss difficult doctrinal theolo- or theological problems uh, that are associated with a particular Bible passage. Um, so there's going to be times when you're looking at your passage and you're going to be like, hmm, I don't understand what's going on here. I know this is dealing with, you know, this... Uh, this big 50 cent theological word and I don't know what even that word means. How do I understand this Bible passage if I can't even figure out what the word means? A commentary, or we'll talk in a minute, a dictionary is going to be helpful in terms of figuring that out. Um, And it will also go through some of the theological debates of the day um, and figuring, and so you understand better what context the passage or the letter was being written into. Commentaries are also particularly useful in checking your own work. You can read several Bible commentaries, and, I, and for checking your own work, I would recommend consulting several, and you could see if other people understand and interpret a Bible passage the same way you do. If recognized authorities are saying one thing, but you say something different, then beware, right? <clears throat> in general, though, commentaries can be broadly divided into three types. I've been covering one type primarily. I've been talking about exegetical commentaries. The other two types are homiletical and devotional. So exegetical commentaries, just to define that for you, an exegetical commentary is a commentary that focuses on the the practice and set of procedures for discovering the author's intended meaning. So they're delving into the structure. They're delving into the words. They're delving into the understanding of the context for the purpose specifically of just saying what the author was trying to communicate. That's an exegetical commentary. Homiletical commentaries are more self-consciously focused on making relevant application. So they're trying to take the text and say, okay, here's what it means. Okay, now what? How do I understand and apply it to life? Um, They tend to be fairly connected to the contemporary world. They often often refer, refer to events, ideas, and movements in contemporary culture. 
and as such, they often have immediate relevance, and that can be really helpful. But, on the other hand, they can also become outdated quickly. So a homiletical commentary from the 1700s may not be as helpful to you as a homiletical commentary that's written in modern day, because they're not going to be addressing the same issues. Uh, Most such commentaries are often weak concerning the explanation of the text's meaning because they focus so heavily on uh, understanding how to apply it. Uh, But a good one will excel at helping you to apply the text to your life. So good homiletical commentaries are helpful, uh, but just be aware that they they don't often focus on what the text really means. So also consulting an exegetical commentary if you're going to consult them is helpful. The final type is a devotional commentary. These are similar to homiletical, but they focus, the focus is usually much more individualistic, right? And um, they focus on general feelings and thoughts rather than on facts. Uh, devotionals often comment at random on individual verses or portions of verses, so they don't necessarily go uh, all the way through a whole book or a whole letter or a whole section. They're ju- often commenting on individual passages. Um, and so they can, you can often lose the context of what's going on there. Some of them are really good. C.H. Spurgeon's uh, um, Morning and Evening is an excellent one that's in this vein. Uh, For the Love of God by D.A. Carson is another excellent one that's in this vein. Um, but they are usually not going to be as helpful as exegetical or homiletical commentaries in terms of you take going to a passage and saying, I want to understand this passage. Often it won't even be covered in a, in a, in a devotional commentary. If you're looking for a good set of commentaries or good commentaries to buy, I have a couple to commend to you and a website to commend. And I'm going to compile this stuff onto a list that I'll give out next, uh, either next week or the week after, by the way. Uh, InterVarsity Press's New Bible Commentary is good. Um, the Tyndale Old and New Testament Commentary series is a good one to use. Um, and also the Bible Speaks Today. Those are commentary sets. If you're, interested, if you're not interested in buying a set, I recommend v- visiting Tim Challey's website. He has many pages about each book of the Bible, going through three, two or three or four of the best commentaries on each individual book. That can be an excellent resource, and he's trustworthy in terms of picking things like commentaries. So I highly recommend his website in terms of saying, I want a commentary on numbers. Oh, we're going to be studying that. I want a commentary on that, and uh, to be able to read and understand his, his website is a great one, and they'll have several commentaries of, diff- of these different types that, would, that, would be, that could be helpful to you. Uh, one form of a commentary is the study Bible. Some, many of you use a study Bible. Uh, study Bible has the Bible text and commentary verses laid out side by side. Uh, study Bibles are an excellent resource uh, for studying your text and, and, and can be easy to reference. Uh, two really good ones, ESV Study Bible and the Reformation Study Bible. Those are the two that I would recommend most highly. Uh, last thing I want to cover very quickly, because we, somehow we are running out of time, and I, didn't re- I thought I was going to have more time than this, but I didn't. Uh, dictionaries and encyclopedias. They are what they seem, what they sound like. It's, a, it's an alphabetical list of words or phrases or concepts and and a short article or an encyclopedia will have a longer article describing what that, con- what that concept or word means. Um, they're easy to use because they're alphabetically laid out and can be helpful when you're trying to do those, that initial observational work and you know the word, you're like, I don't even know what that word means. Huh? So I don't, Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias can be really helpful. The, the, the thing that I will say about them, however, is be careful when you're using them. Um, 
Context determines meaning, not our dictionaries and encyclopedias. They're going to give you a list of definitions in a, in a, in a dictionary, or your encyclopedia is going to give you a, maybe a range of ideas that could go along with a particular phrase. But which one of those is actually in view when you're reading your passage is going to be determined by the context of your passage. So don't read your Bible dictionary definition and say, ah, now I know what this word means, and now go to apply it in the text. Um, So that's the one caution that I would give you with respect to dictionaries and encyclopedias. But they can be useful, especially for those queries of fact. I need to know what what is Susa? I mentioned in a a session a couple weeks ago. Where is that? What, What country is it a part of? I don't even understand what Susa is. And you can look up that in a Bible encyclopedia or a dictionary and it would have uh, a description for you. Well, good. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I apologize for that. Um, I don't know where I lost my time. I shortened my session by quite a bit. But um, I'm going to close for us in a word of prayer. If you do have questions, see me afterwards or save them for next week. Um, the next two weeks, we'll have, we should have more time for this because those sessions are quite a bit shorter. So thanks so much for coming, everyone, and let me pray to close. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. We ask that you would give us your blessing on our upcoming worship service. And Lord, help us to be eager students of your Bible that we might know and understand and love our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.